0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What color were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history, and they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. This episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This episode also uses sudden sound effects. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to elders, past and present. It's just before 9.30 on the night of Friday the 21st of July, 1950, And at Peirce Crystal Hostel, three detectives are waiting inside room number 34 for its guest to return. Looking around at his possessions, they know they've got their man. What would be amusing, if it wasn't so appalling, is that this creep is due to get married tomorrow afternoon, and he's even bought himself a book called What to Do at Weddings. But it's what he might do after the wedding that's the real worry. The last woman who agreed to be his bride? She hasn't been seen for months. Her disappearance is why the police are here. One of the men in this room, Perth CIB Chief Detective Inspector Albert Blight, has only just joined this investigation two days ago. But the Sydney officers that he's assisting, Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack and Detective Frederick Cray, have lived and breathed this case for the past seven weeks non stop. Starting in Sydney on the 7th of June, their investigation has seen them go to Goulburn, to Canberra, farther south to Cooma in the Snowy Mountains, across the Monaro High Plains to Coastal Pambula and on down to Eden. Then, over the border into Victoria, along the coast and into Gippsland before stopping in Melbourne. Then, back to Sydney and on up to Brisbane. A few days ago, Adelaide and then Perth and up north to a little town. Today, back to Perth, and to this hotel room. Detectives Jack and Cray have traveled in planes, trains, and automobiles. All along the way, they've interviewed witnesses, collected evidence, and bit by bit built an ever more disturbing picture of their quarry. The detectives have grabbed sleep and food when and where they can. They're exhausted but exhilarated, because now they've almost got him just so long as their suspect doesn't sense their presence and slip away into the night. At 9.30, there's noise outside the door to room 34. Movement, voices, a man and a woman. There's a key in the lock, and the door swings open. In walks the man, the Sydney detectives have chased over 10,000 miles. He's unmistakable from his various mugshots. Arthur Graham. That's the name under which he's checked into this hotel. But he's also been known for a long time as Frederick Arthur Stevens. Before that, he made headlines as Thomas Edward Croft. Yet, peel back the aliases, and he's really Lionel Charles Thomas. Detective Gordon Jack grabs Thomas by the arm, just in case he's got a gun. This isn't a bloke that you take chances with not with what he suspected of doing in his long criminal career. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the first installment in the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. While this episode is standalone, it also links to the previous one, Pearl Harbor and the Paycar Ambush, so you might want to listen to that first. Parts 2, 3, and 4 of this episode will be released in the next two weeks, but they're available now early and ad-free to Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. Links are in your show notes. Just a heads up, if you'd like to try the Apple offering of early ad-free and bonus episodes, you can get a three-day free trial. Cancel before it expires and you won't pay a cent. Unfortunately, Patreon doesn't let me offer free trials, so I'm sorry about that. Lionel Charles Thomas's parents, Thomas Charles Thomas and Emily Stubblety, were married in Melbourne in 1900. Their first child, daughter Florence, was born the following year. Four years later, on the 28th of December 1905, they had a son. This was Lionel. The family moved to Mildura, where Lionel's father worked on the railways, and by 1912 they were at Kiton, his old man employed as a train examiner. Thanks to his dad, Thomas knew a lot about railways, though the lad himself would become a baker and pastry cook. In 1925, his sister Florence married a mechanic named Frederick Arthur Stevens, inadvertently providing her brother with one of the identities he'd laid a pilfer. Thomas grew to stand about 5'10. He was dark complexioned with black hair he wore slicked down and brown eyes under heavy brows. He wasn't especially handsome. He was the sort of man who grew into his looks as he got older. But Thomas did know how to charm women. In March 1927, he married a girl named Agnes Rankin. Little is known about her, but she didn't have to suffer her husband for too long. From September 1930, Thomas, his sister Florence, and her husband Fred teamed up as a merry band of crooks. They used jemmies and shears to break into stores in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. They hit Kew, Baldwin, Canterbury, Surrey Hills, Malvern, and Hawthorne. To mix things up a little, they also struck in North Melbourne. All up, they stole around £2,000 worth of goods. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's close to $200,000 today. Melbourne's CIB flatfoots were left flat-footed by the gang's daring, such as them hitting the same store three times on each occasion, cutting a hole in the roof and lowering themselves inside to take whatever they wanted. Finally, on the night of the 18th of February, 1931, detectives nabbed Thomas at his place in Kew and collared Florence at the Box Hill joint that she shared with her hubby Fred. The police retrieved stolen items valued at 400 pounds. The Herald headline the next day read, Brother and Sister Arrested. But while the detectives had snared the siblings, Fred was still in the wind. He'd been walking towards his Box Hill home as the raid was in progress. He'd realised the car outside belonged to the cops and he'd legged it. When Thomas and Florence faced their committal on the 12th of March, Campbellwell Court looked a little bit like a store. Among the evidence laid out was a bath heater, cabinet wireless sets, tennis rackets, bicycle wheels, carpets and hosiery. Even a few of those toy cars that little kids could sit in and pedal around. Brother, sister and brother-in-law had stolen whatever wasn't nailed down. Thomas allegedly told the police how they'd worked. He and Fred would steal a car, drive it to a store, break in, load up with loot and then roar away. They'd later abandon the getaway vehicle, then they'd rinse and repeat. To the court, Florence wasn't some sort of bystander. She faced eight counts of breaking, entering and stealing. Thomas and his sister both pleaded not guilty, and both were committed to stand trial. Perhaps feeling a little bit like a cad for leaving his wife in the lurch to take the heat, Fred turned himself in the day after that hearing. And after that, it seemed as though he and Thomas struck a deal with the cops and with the Crown. See, charges against Florence were dropped, while at their mid-April trial, both men pleaded guilty. They got four years apiece in Pentridge for the break, enter, and stealing charges. And Fred scored an extra six months for larceny. Though Fred got more time, he was released first in mid-April 1934. Thomas followed to freedom at the start of July that year. Three months later, almost to the day, Australia was appalled by a crime that would eventually be sheeted home to him. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, Henry Thomas Norwood, known as Tom, was born to hotel keepers Sydney Norwood and Helena Dadswell in Deniliquin in New South Wales in May 1899. Growing up, Tom knew some tragedy. His younger sister, Helena, named for their mother, died when she was just 18 months old. Tom was then only seven, so he might not have fully comprehended the loss, but that wouldn't have been the case in August 1915. The family was now living in Tarnagulla in Victoria, when Sydney, the family's eldest boy, named his father, was killed at the Battle of Lone Pine at Gallipoli. Each year after that, the family would mark the date with a notice in the Argus. Too young to enlist and go and fight like his brother, Tom joined the Victorian railways in 1916. He worked his way up through the grades in far-flung parts of the state, in June 1930, Tom married a nurse named Veronica Pickett. They had a daughter, named Betty, and took a house in Carnegie, eight miles southeast of Melbourne. But at the time, Tom was still working at Nanagoon, some 40 miles farther out. In November 1933, the family had reason to celebrate. Tom had been promoted to assistant station master at Carnegie, just a mile's walk from where he lived with Veronica and Betty more money and more convenience was certainly welcome as the great depression was still making things tough all over on monday the 1st of october 1934 tom took on even more responsibility he was filling in as relieving station master while his boss took annual holidays that also meant working nights which was something he didn't usually do tom norwood started at carnegie station at 5 that afternoon just after quarter past ten, he was at his desk in the station master's office, which was divided by a wooden partition into the bookings and parcel office, each having their own counter behind a metal security grill. Tom was counting the day's takings. Cash and coin totaled £137, which, adjusted for inflation, is about fifteen pounds The total was far larger than usual that day because so many commuters had renewed their monthly tickets. Tom put the money into a leather cash bag. The satchel also contained the station master's loaded automatic pistol. This was to be for Tom's security when he took the bag out onto the platform so he could hand it to the guards on the cash train that was bound for Melbourne. This service was due at Carnegie at 10.55. Hearing someone enter the outer parcel office, Tom placed the bag on a ledge near the bookings counter and went to the grill to see how he could help. A tall man was there pointing a 32 caliber automatic pistol at him. The man wanted the cash bag. Likely, he told Tom to unlock the office door and let him in. That way, he could keep him covered with the pistol while he grabbed the bag. But in that split second, Tom turned and he ran. If he could get around the partition to the booking office phone, he'd be out of (laughs) sight. The assistant station master stumbled around the partition and pulled the phone receiver from the wall. In a frenzy, the gunman now tried to bend back the metal grills at the booking and parcel windows. He couldn't do it. The cash bag was almost in reach. Almost, but not quite. While the bandit had timed his robbery so that any noise would be covered by two trains that arrived and departed within three minutes of each other, the wounded station master had made it to the phone and was now calling for help. Panicked, the gunman ran from the station, sprinted down a pedestrian ramp, jumped over a fence, and hurried off into the night. Tom's phone line connected directly to the Flinders Street control room. Operator Arthur Liddy answered. Tom's voice was barely above a whisper as he said, I've been shot. Send the police. Carnegie, hurry. Arthur Liddy asked, Are you alone? Is there anyone that can take care of you? Tom said with a gasp, I'm dying. Operator Arthur Liddy heard a thud, like someone falling to the floor. While he kept the line open, he phoned the police. Down the line from Carnegie, Arthur Liddy heard bashing and crashing as two station workers broke into the office. One was a junior porter named Frank Morrissey. He'd just attended to a train heading into the city. This was the 1021 service. And as the last carriage pulled away, he thought he'd heard a crack, like someone slamming a door. Moments later, a boy called from the opposite platform, saying he had to come right away because, quote, "'Somebody's been shooting at somebody in the booking office.'" Frank Morrissey had bolted across. He heard someone groaning inside the office, but the door was locked. He hammered on it to no avail. Frank Morrissey and another railway worker used a broom to smash a glass panel so they could reach in and unlock the door. There they saw Tom collapsed on the floor. He was on his back. His eyes were open, but he seemed to be unconscious. There was a tiny blood stain on the front of his shirt. The phone receiver hung down near him. The leather cash bag was on the ledge untouched. Frank Morrissey grabbed the phone. At the other end, operator Arthur Liddy said, "Tell me quickly." What's wrong? Frank said, the station master is lying on his back and seems to be ill. The operator replied, he's not just sick. I think perhaps he's dying. Someone has shot him. Frank Morrissey ran for a doctor, but by the time this medical man arrived, it was too late. The bullets had hit Tom in the upper part of his back, seven and a half inches apart. They'd pierced both of his lungs, and one bullet had grazed his heart. The blood on the front of his shirt was where one of the slugs was protruding from his chest. Tom had died from internal bleeding. Flinders Street phone operator Arthur Liddy would tell the Argus a few days later, quote, The sound of Mr. Norwood's dying voice has been a nightmare to me ever since I heard it. Police swarmed the scene and spread out. There were quite a few witnesses. Walter Strickland, an off-duty porter, told police he'd seen a man hanging around the station before the shooting. He was tall, maybe 5'10", 5'11", and seemed to be watching the booking office, and this man had also been staring at Walter. Walter said the fellow had been acting so suspiciously that he would have questioned him if he'd been in uniform. Instead, the off-duty porter had gone home shortly before the crime, the man still loitering when he departed. A woman named Marie Considine told police she'd also seen this dark-haired tall man. She'd noticed him because he didn't get out of her way when she passed through the ticket barrier. She thought he was rude. The fellow, she said, had a toothbrush moustache and it looked fake. Marie Considine said he'd been staring at the booking office with what she described as a murderous look. Both of their descriptions matched the one given by a young man who'd been attending a dance near the station. He'd stepped out of the hall and been standing on a corner when he'd heard the shots about four seconds apart. He'd seen the man flee down the station ramp, jump over a fence and disappear. Police found footprints in the backyard of a local postal official's house. A man had seemingly climbed over his fence, jumped, landed heavily and then left footprints that were four feet apart. Indicating he'd been running. He'd apparently then pulled a paling from another fence and loosened a drain pipe as he climbed over it. The house's owner said her terrier had barked furiously and chased the fugitive. A few minutes later, another local had seen the suspect running full speed towards Murrumbina. These witnesses gave varying ages for the suspect, saying he was between 30 and 45. For a number of reasons, detectives didn't believe their shooter had been a professional gangster. For starters, railway station pickings weren't rich enough for career gunmen. Not with the risk posed by the constant coming and going of potential witnesses. And when such targets were hit, as was the case a couple of years back with a spate of station robberies, they'd been two-man jobs, one to do the stick-up, the other to drive the getaway car. But this bloke had been alone and on foot when the robbery went wrong rather than just walk away as a professional would he'd panicked and he'd pulled the trigger he'd gotten nothing but an innocent man was dead a young wife had been made into a grieving widow and their little girl would grow up never having known her father the norwood family had lost a son at gallipoli at least there was some valor in that but now they'd lost a second son in a senseless tragedy during peacetime. With numerous eyewitnesses offering good descriptions, Melbourne CIB was confident of early success. One detective told the Argus quote, "This crime is much more easy to solve than the Aubrey murder." He was, of course, referring to the pajama girl case. She'd been found one month earlier. And since then, all efforts to identify her had failed. An Argus reporter asked if the Carnegie shooter was known to police. The detective gave a guarded response, perhaps meant to spook the suspect. That I am not allowed to tell you. We can say, however, that the description fits a man we know, and every channel is being combed to find him. All ships leaving Melbourne are being watched, as are all interstate trains. Whoever he was, the gunman had to go anywhere and do anything to avoid capture. Squizzy Taylor's mate, Angus Murray, had been hanged just for being an accomplice in the 1923 robbery shooting murder of a bank manager at Glen Ferry Railway Station just a few stops up the line. If Tom Norwood's killer was caught, he stood an excellent chance of following Murray to the gallows. By the end of the week, Chief Commissioner of Police, Major General Thomas Blamey, said the Victorian government would not be offering a reward. Quote, It is customary to offer a reward in these cases only when all avenues of investigation open to the police have been explored and no results have been obtained. Two months later, in mid-December, a £500 reward was offered. Melbourne CIB, for all their early confidence, had gotten nowhere in the manhunt for the murderer. So, had detectives looked at Lionel Charles Thomas? At the time of Tom Norwood's murder, he'd been out of Pentridge for three months. Thomas was just below the lower end of the age range given by witnesses. But he was a good match in terms of height, hair and colouring. Thomas had also worked almost exclusively in the eastern suburbs. Thanks to his father's long career with the railways, he knew procedures in terms of takings being bigger on the first of the month. Timing the robbery to the arrival and departure of trains might also have suggested a familiarity with railway operations. Realistically, though, the description of the shooter, tall, dark, 30 to 45, would have matched hundreds of crooks and any bandit with half a brain might suss out there was more money to be had on the first of the month and simply use the timetable to time his raid to train arrivals and departures. Besides, Thomas was a burglar, not a gunman. That might fit the profile of an amateur who'd panicked, but on the balance of things, Melbourne detectives had no real reason to suspect him. But what he'd do in the coming year might have made them take a closer look at him except Thomas would commit these crimes in another state under another name.
0: You
1: After Thomas got out of jail in Melbourne, he'd hooked up with a married woman named Muriel Croft. She'd married her husband, 21-year-old waiter Thomas Edward Croft, in 1931. This was a year after he was convicted of a serious offence against a girl aged between 10 and 16. Thomas Croft, the creep, had gotten a six-month sentence, but the judge had suspended this and put him on a two-year good behaviour bond of £20. By 1934, Thomas and Muriel Croft were separated and she'd taken up with the newly released Lionel Charles Thomas. They started to claim that they were married. Not just that, he took her husband's name, now calling himself Thomas Croft. Why do that? likely because Muriel could give him papers that proved this identity. And further, Thomas Croft had only been given a rap over the knuckles for his sex offence. Otherwise, he was clean, whereas Lionel Charles Thomas was a recently released Pentridge jailbird. In any event, the newly minted Thomas Croft and his fake wife Muriel went up to Sydney. Cut to Friday, the 9th of November, 1934. This was just five weeks after the shooting murder of Tom Norwood at Carnegie. In Darlinghurst in Sydney, around quarter to one in the afternoon, two men, George Oakman, aged 66, and Leslie Klein, 44, were carrying a bag of money, one handle each, as they walked along Oxford Street from the Bank of New South Wales. These two men worked as packers for Wins. Winds was a popular department store with a shop front on Oxford Street. And it also had a grand building set back on Liverpool Street, which pedestrians could reach by walking down a lane and descending a flight of stone steps. For the past half an hour or so, witnesses would say, two young women dressed in black had been loitering around this throughway. As the Winds men, George and Leslie, walked by Oxford Street's Exchange Hotel and entered the laneway, one of these girls gave a signal. That was when two attackers came up behind the windsmen and rubbed Pepper into their eyes. George and Leslie reeled as one of their assailants grabbed the money bag. The bandits bolted down the laneway for the steps. Despite being temporarily blinded, the windsmen gave chase and called out for help. The bad guys jumped into a stolen car they'd parked near the bottom of the steps. Witnesses said the two girls piled into the back seat and ducked down. George Oakman reached the car and grabbed its bumper bar, excitedly trying to stop them from escaping. Leaning out, the driver told him to back off. When he didn't, the bandit fired a shot from a small revolver. Struck in the thigh near his groin, George fell to the ground. The driver burned off down the lane, rounded the corner into Riley Street and was last seen heading for Oxford Street. Eyewitness Arthur Parsons told The Sun, quote, From the driver's seat, one of the bandits, with his hat pulled well over his eyes and shielding his face with his arm, called out something. The car had not started to move. Then there was a sudden report, and Oakman fell back on the road as the car sped away. I got to the poor fellow just as he fell, and did what I could to help him until the ambulance came. Wireless police cars were on the scene within five minutes. The stolen getaway car was found abandoned in Darlinghurst soon afterwards. While this might have looked like a well-planned professional job, the observations the bandits had made or the information they'd obtained was wrong. The crooks had been after the Wins payroll, but George and Leslie had just collected 20 pounds in coins from the bank. This was quite literally the small change that Wins needed for that evening's late-night shopping. The whole thing reeked of amateur hour. Carrying out the crime in broad daylight, they'd been seen by numerous witnesses. The gunman had panicked and shot a civilian. If any Melbourne detective had been there that day, the first thing he would have thought of was the Carnegie murder. And this could have ended up like that. George Oakman was rushed to hospital. He'd survive and recover. But that result was as much good luck as anything else. The reckless shooting could have severed his femoral artery and seen him bleed to death in minutes. Even a less serious gunshot wound could lead to infection that might be fatal in the days before antibiotics. George Oakman had been lucky not to be murdered. But whoever had shot him would be up for attempted murder. And in New South Wales in 1934, that came with a death sentence. Any man convicted would have to hope the New South Wales executive would commute his sentence to life in prison. What was frustrating was that George's vision had been so impaired by the pepper, he hadn't actually seen who'd shot him. His colleague Leslie, meanwhile, also had eyes full of irritant, and he thought it had been a man and a figure dressed as a woman who'd committed the robbery. He, too, wasn't able to say who'd done the shooting. But other eyewitnesses gave their exciting and terrifying stories to the newspapers. Some said it had been two men and two female accomplices. But the CIB was soon to announce there hadn't been any women involved. Witnesses had been wrong about them getting into the car. The girls in question were just known to hang around this spot, implying that they were prostitutes. Certainly, in the heat of the moment, with men running, victims yelling, pedestrians scattering, a shot fired, a car roaring off, it's possible that frightened people would get it wrong. But George Gidney, a win's employee, sounded pretty definite. He'd noticed the girls hanging around, and surely if they were regulars, he would have recognized them as such. Instead, he heard one say to the other, we'll wait another five minutes. Before that time was up, George and Leslie were attacked, and George Gidney saw those two girls jump into the car. The Sun reported that other witnesses had seen the same thing. No description of the male attackers was issued at this time. The culprits weren't caught, and the crime was soon forgotten. At least, until the sequel. On the morning of Wednesday the 7th of August 1935, in busy Kirkton Road, Darlinghurst, just off William Street, and less than half a mile from where the wind's job went down, a couple of men were going about a business deal. John Wilson, an elderly man who'd been unemployed for two years, was about to buy two Ford motor cars using his life savings. His idea was to start a taxi service, be his own boss and have a regular income. Mr. Wilson was purchasing these vehicles via Kenneth O'Connell. He was a 30 year old garage proprietor who also ran a hire car business. O'Connell had contracts with government departments and one of his vehicles had last year been used as the pilot car during Prince Henry's Sydney tour. O'Connell's cars were also used in a lot of payroll deliveries. Another feather in his cap was that he was an agent for a city car dealership, and it was in this capacity that he'd organised the deal that had seen Mr. Wilson buy the two Fords. That morning, O'Connell was picked up by Mr. and Mrs. Wilson and, at O'Connell's suggestion, they parked their car in Kirkton Road. Leaving Mrs. Wilson in the vehicle, the two men went to a William Street bank where O'Connell had placed Mr. Wilson's money overnight for safekeeping. Picking up the cash, £690 in total, they started walking back to the car. O'Connell was carrying the bag as they headed along Kirkton Road suddenly a tall dark-haired young man jumped up from behind a bumper and flung pepper at them he snatched the bag from o'connell but mr wilson's spectacles had stopped him from being temporarily blinded when he tried to grab the bandit the man punched him in the face knocking out three of mr wilson's teeth and sending his glasses flying to shatter on the road the robber took off despite his injuries and shock mr wilson gave chase The bandit sprinted up Kirkton Road, raced around a corner, climbed a high fence, and disappeared into a paddock. As had been the case in last year's Pepper robbery, it was initially reported the man had two female accomplices. About 20 minutes before the attack, these women had been seen casing the escape route and the fence. But it soon seemed apparent the bandit had more help than that. How had he known about this private deal? Even more suspicious, why hadn't Kenneth O'Connell actually been hit by the pepper? When police arrived, they found there was none on his skin, in his hair, or on his clothes. Given this, why had he let go of the bag immediately? Mr. Wilson would say he'd actually seemed to hold it out for the man to take. And why hadn't O'Connell given chase? Why had he insisted on going to that particular bank and parking in that particular spot on Kirkton Road? Mr. Wilson had a bank almost right next to his house, which they could have used to keep the money safe overnight. Detective John Swazbrick put all of these questions to Kenneth O'Connell. Unable to answer them satisfactorily, he was arrested and charged with conspiring in the robbery. According to Detective Swasbrick, O'Connell had said, quote, I can see I've been a fool to have been mixed up in this. Asked if he'd name his accomplices, he replied, no. I'll have to take what's coming myself." But Kenneth O'Connell wasn't going to face the music alone. That was because Sydney CIB had their sights on Thomas Edward Croft, alias Lionel Charles Thomas. His 1931 Pentridge mugshot and description were circulated to all states and printed in the relevant police gazettes. In this notice, it said a warrant for his arrest had already been issued for the 24th of July theft of a Ford from Double Bay but he was now also wanted in connection with the John Wilson robbery. Questioned about this accomplice, Kenneth O'Connell denied knowing Thomas Croft. On the 28th of August, a detective Richards confronted Thomas in Darlinghurst. The suspect tried to run. When this officer said, hands up, Thomas allegedly dropped a hand and reached for his hip pocket, but he thought better of it. Thomas was arrested and he was found in possession of an unlicensed pistol that had a bullet in the chamber and a fully loaded magazine. Additionally, at this time, Kenneth's wife, Muriel O'Connell, was arrested for being in on the robbery. Like her husband, she denied knowing Thomas Croft. Meanwhile, Thomas Croft's fake wife, Muriel Croft, was also under suspicion as being an accomplice. When Thomas was brought into Sydney Central Police Station, he supposedly confessed to committing this Pepper robbery. He allegedly identified O'Connell as the man who'd put him up to the job. At the committal hearing in early September, victim John Wilson said that O'Connell had seemed to steer him towards the Kirkton Road ambush spot. He said his attacker was 5'10 or 5'11, but that he didn't get a look at his face. He'd smelt Pepper, seen the man take the bag from O'Connell tuck it under his arm and run. Mr. Wilson said he'd chased him for six or seven hundred yards before the bandit escaped over a fence. With this victim unable to identify his assailant, the case was going to depend on Thomas's alleged confession. His statement had included, quote, I stepped in front of the old fellow, threw the pepper into his face and pushed him on the face. O'Connell held the bag out and I took it off him and ran up the lane. I jumped the fence with the bag and went into town. O'Connell's undeniable association with Mr. Wilson and his suspicious behaviour made it seem like the charges were going to stick. But the charges against his wife Muriel O'Connell were dropped. This was because the prosecution believed no jury would convict solely on Thomas implicating her. At the committal, Muriel Croft also gave evidence. She said that she and Thomas had arrived from Victoria on the 8th of July, 1935. They'd gone to live at Helensburgh. Mr. and Mrs. O'Connell had stayed with them there. Muriel was asked, Is this man in court named Croft or Crofts? Muriel said no, and told the court he'd adopted that name at her suggestion. Even though it wasn't his birth name, Lionel Charles Thomas was nevertheless committed to stand trial under the name Thomas Edward Croft. Kenneth O'Connell would face the same robbery and assault charges. When the trial began at the end of October, both men pleaded not guilty. Now, they both said that they didn't know each other. How was that possible, given Thomas's statement? Well, his barrister, the legendary defence counsel Phil Roach, who'd represented half of Sydney's crims, objected to the admissibility of Thomas's confession, saying it had been obtained by inducement. This was argued in court before the jury took their seats. Detective Swasbrick said the statement had been made voluntarily. It had been given to him by Thomas in the presence of other detectives. But he admitted it had also been made in the presence of Muriel Croft. Muriel Croft, who, since the committal hearing, had disappeared. Given that she was in the wind, she wasn't going to be testifying for the defense. But that also meant she couldn't be cross-examined by the prosecution. Phil Roach wanted to know why Muriel Croft had been there during Thomas's police interrogation. Was it to coerce him? That's what Mr. Roach wanted to know. Detective Swasbrick said it wasn't. At the time, they'd thought Muriel might be implicated in the robbery. She had been charged with stealing a car, but that charge had ultimately been withdrawn. Detective Swasbrick denied that Thomas had been offered a deal, make a statement, and they dropped the car theft charge against Muriel. Yet, it was undoubtedly strange she'd been in the room. Keeping suspects apart so they couldn't corroborate each other's stories was standard police procedure. In court, Phil Roach asked Thomas why he'd made that statement to the police. He replied, quote, solely for the purpose of getting her out of trouble. The judge rejected Phil Roach's argument. The statement was admissible. The jury would hear the alleged confession. This sort of courtroom argument, in which an accused person said their confession had been coerced or fabricated, was common at a time when police had no way of recording interviews and, in any case, weren't obliged to conduct them in the presence of independent observers. Cops back then certainly did verbal suspects to get convictions. But Crim's also falsely claimed they'd been made to talk or had words put into their mouths after they'd had a chance to talk to a solicitor or barrister and realise this was now their best and maybe only chance at staying free. It was up to a judge to decide if a statement could be entered into evidence. If it was, then detectives could be cross-examined about how they'd obtained it. A jury would decide who they believed. The scales of justice were certainly tipped in the police's favour, but it didn't always go their way. The Crown opened its case against Thomas and O'Connell by saying the robbery had been achieved via a quote, particularly mean, cowardly and contemptible trick. O'Connell's barrister said that Thomas's statement was false and that it had been used to frame his client. His defender cross-examined detective richards about his interrogation of thomas had the officer given the accused details of the case when he was arrested the detective admitted he had as the sun paraphrased quote it had not occurred to him that it could be pieced together and made into a story against an innocent man o'connell's barrister put it to detective richards that by supplying this information to thomas quote you told him the story which he could use if he wanted to get a lady out of trouble. Don't you think it was an extremely dangerous thing to do? Detective Richards answered, yes. O'Connell gave an unsworn statement from the dock to deny any conspiracy with Thomas. As he wasn't on the stand, under oath, he couldn't be cross-examined. But he claimed he didn't even know the man. O'Connell said that the bandit who attacked John Wilson had attacked him too, and he'd been treated in jail for a head injury. O'Connell said he was a successful businessman who intended to honor the car deal. He was financially sound, and he'd had no need to rob anyone. Thomas also made an unsworn statement from the dock. He said his real name was Lionel Charles Thomas. He didn't know anything about the crime except for what had been in the newspapers. And, of course, what the police had fed him for the statement that he made so that Muriel Croft could be turned loose. Thomas said he'd been at home at Helensborough at the time of the robbery. He also denied he'd reached for a gun when Detective Richards told him to stick up his hands. With all the evidence heard, there came a shock development. The Crown Prosecutor had heard from several police that they'd seen Phil Roach and his law clerk talking with one of the jury members on their way into court. Checks into this juryman's background showed he had 15 convictions. Five were between 1927 and 1929, and the last of these was attempted theft. The worry was the fix was in. Phil Roach vehemently denied knowing the juryman or speaking to him. His clerk said the same thing. Mr. Roach said the police had a grudge against him. The juryman insisted on giving evidence. He told the judge he'd been on the straight and narrow for these past six years. He was now a businessman. He'd been summoned for jury duty in the usual fashion. He hadn't wanted to do it, but had been afraid he'd risk contempt if he tried to get out of it. The judge said he didn't believe that Phil Roach and his clerk had acted improperly. But even if the juryman was squeaky clean these days, that was beside the point a convicted felon couldn't sit in judgment of other people in court. The judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial. Was the convicted juryman being exposed just a coincidence? Or had Phil Roach, who knew more crims than just about anyone else in Sydney, recognised him as a former crook and kept this information up his sleeve, knowing that if he said as much as g'day to the man, In front of the right people, it'd trigger an investigation and a mistrial. It's not possible to know. But curious court anomalies would feature in future proceedings against Lionel Charles Thomas. And as for him alleging he'd been framed by the cops, he was only getting started. In the first week of November, Thomas and Kenneth O'Connell faced their retrial for the Pepper robbery and assault on Mr. Wilson. This time... They were both found guilty. His honor also ordered Thomas to stand trial for the car theft and for having that unlicensed pistol. In reference to the gun, Thomas said, I had no intention of using it. His honor replied, why did you carry it then? Men who carry guns are apt to fire them in a panic. Again, a Melbourne detective hearing those words would also definitely have thought of Carnegie. Thomas got four years with hard labor. O'Connell got three years. At a subsequent hearing, Thomas pleaded guilty to the pistol and car theft charges. And for these, he got another nine months. But Thomas was also soon looking at a possible death sentence. In early 1936, the Crown had decided that Lionel Charles Thomas, AKA Thomas Edward Croft, was the man who'd shot George Oakman during the November 1934 Wins Pepper Robbery. In April, Thomas faced a committal hearing on charges of shooting with intent to murder and of robbery and assault. But, as we've heard, Mr. Oakman had not gotten a good look at the perpetrator. The other Wins man, Leslie Klein, hadn't either. But the Crown now had another witness. This was Constable George Page, a Newcastle policeman who'd been in Sydney on holidays. He hadn't been mentioned at all in the initial newspaper coverage. The constable told the committal he'd been passing on a tram that day, seen the Pepper attack, jumped off and given chase. Quote, I saw Croft grab the bag and later fire the shot at Oakman. Constable Page was absolutely positive. He'd picked out Thomas in a lineup two weeks before the committal hearing. The Crown's other key witness was Arthur Parsons, though, as we've also heard, he'd told the Sun at the time the gunman had covered his face. Now he told the court he'd also picked Croft out of a lineup as a, quote, man of similar build and appearance to the shooter. Thomas pleaded not guilty. He was committed to stand trial. When he faced court in June, it might have seemed that his goose was cooked. Two eyewitnesses, One of them, a police constable, would carry a lot of weight with a jury. But Thomas had a trick up his sleeve. He produced a witness from Victoria named Rupert Bird. Mr. Bird lived next door to Thomas's family in Castle, Maine. As for his credibility, Rupert Bird had been a prison warder for a decade, and a police constable for six years before that. Unlike the Crown's witnesses, he wasn't testifying to what he thought he'd seen in a few frantic seconds. Mr. Bird told the court that he'd first met Thomas on Melbourne Cup Day in 1934. That was the 6th of November that year. He'd seen Thomas at the family home fixing blinds with his father three days later, the 9th of November, the day of the Winds robbery in Sydney. The jury took just a few minutes to acquit Lionel Charles Thomas. He was returned to custody to serve the rest of his sentence. Years later, it was reported that Rupert Bird said he'd been confused by Thomas as to the dates and tricked into supplying a false alibi. How was that possible? After the wind shooting, Thomas could have fled to his parents' place and used suggestion on Bird as to when they'd met in case he ever did need an alibi. In his testimony, Mr Bird said that Thomas had been at his parents' place for the rest of 1934 and into 1935. It's also possible that Thomas, using intermediaries, had from prison bribed or threatened Rupert Bird. Whatever he'd done, it had worked. Over the past five years, Thomas's crimes, those proved and those alleged, had overlapping elements. He often worked with accomplices, sometimes female, and he used stolen cars. He carried a pistol, and it seemed clear he'd used it recklessly in at least one robbery. Faced with charges, he'd make a statement if it had help a lady friend go free, knowing he might be able to later claim in court that cops had coerced this confession. Thomas had also possibly conspired with counsel and others to pervert the course of justice. Did all of that add up to him being a likely candidate for the murder of Tom Norwood at Carnegie Station in October 1934? The fact that he'd changed his name left Melbourne and five weeks later in Sydney, almost certainly shot a resisting victim in a panic during an ill-conceived robbery did make him seem like the sort of fellow who could commit such a callous crime. Thomas appears to have been released from jail in New South Wales around the start of 1939. He headed back to Victoria. His former partner in crime, Kenneth O'Connell, was also free and living in Melbourne. There, he sought out the CIB's Detective McGuffey, who'd been in charge of the Carnegie murder investigation. O'Connell, who at his trial had denied knowing Thomas, now had a very different story. He said he'd first met him in Sydney in October 1934. They'd come into closer contact from February 1935 when Thomas became a regular hire car customer. Thomas had big criminal plans. Knowing O'Connell hired vehicles out for payroll runs, he wanted to use this information to rob one. When O'Connell said it was a no-go because paymasters were protected by armed escorts, Thomas had said he'd be armed too and he could take care of any guard. O'Connell said he didn't want anything to do with robbery using guns. Thomas said it was the only way to do it, and no one would get hurt if they were smart and handed over the money. But then Thomas had gone on at length about this time it hadn't worked out that way. Down in Melbourne, he'd had to shoot a stupid station master who'd gone for the phone. Thomas said it was either him or me. He said a lot more too that implicated him, beyond doubt, in the cold-blooded Carnegie murder. By saying this to Detective McGuffey, O'Connell was making a serious allegation. The officer only needed to make a few inquiries about Lionel Charles Thomas, aka Thomas Edward Croft, to see he had form. Yet, why hadn't O'Connell said anything about this at the time? He surely could have traded this information when facing the charges of conspiring with Thomas to rob and assault John Wilson in Darlinghurst in 1935. Except back then his defence had been he was totally innocent and he didn't even know Thomas. So telling the cops or the Crown that Thomas had confided to him about a murder in Victoria would have nullified that defence entirely it might have been even more of a risk if Thomas was suspected of having shot and wounded a man in a similar robbery in Sydney while with a still unidentified male accomplice. By admitting he knew Thomas, O'Connell might have been dobbing himself in for that crime too. Further, it would also have been a gamble because the Sydney CIB simply might not have believed him. Even if they did, there was no guarantee that it would help his situation. If O'Connell's information had gotten Thomas extradited to Melbourne, would Sydney police simply have dropped the charges against him? It would have been hard to justify since it was clear he'd set up Mr Wilson to be robbed and assaulted. There were complicated potential reasons for O'Connell to stay silent in 1935. But when asked directly about it, he'd simply said, "'Spite.' Back then, he'd been angry that he'd been caught and convicted, and he wasn't helping the coppers out with anything. In 1939, when Detective McGuffey checked O'Connell's record, he would have had plenty of reasons to be sceptical. The man had done time for a crime he committed with Thomas. Maybe he was just nursing a grudge against his former criminal crony. But Detective McGuffey did his due diligence. He found Thomas, and he interviewed him about the Carnegie case for seven hours. Thomas said, He didn't know anything about the murder. In 1934, he claimed he'd been having trouble with his wife, Agnes. She was seeing another fella, so he went to stay with his parents at Castle Main. Thomas would say he hadn't been in the city of Melbourne at all in 1934. Detective McGuffey would have known that wasn't totally true. For starters, Thomas had been in Pentridge until the start of July that year. The officer wasn't to lay the claim that he'd shown Thomas's mugshot to Carnegie witnesses. Maybe he did, and they didn't identify him. Maybe he didn't because the suspect was convincing, and the only evidence against him was coming from a former criminal associate. In any event, Detective McGuffey didn't arrest Thomas. Not that Lionel Charles Thomas was keeping his nose clean... In July 1939, someone broke into the Friar's Town Post Office and Store near Castle, Maine. The hall was 19 pounds, some tobacco and other goods. Thomas's brother-in-law and former partner in crime, Frederick Arthur Stevens, was arrested for the job, released on bail and committed to stand trial in August. Of course, given they'd worked together on such B&Es back in the day, suspicion likely also fell on Thomas. When Fred faced court in August, The jury couldn't agree, and he was set for retrial on the 9th of November. Before that, at the start of September, the world changed when Hitler's army blitzkrieged its way into Poland and triggered the Second European War of the past quarter century. Australia asked able-bodied men to apply to serve abroad in the 2nd AIS 6th Division. That's what Thomas did on the 27th of September 1939. He went to his local recruitment depot at Preston, just 10 minutes' walk from the house he shared with his sister and brother-in-law, and he submitted himself to the medical. Was Thomas patriotically stirred to fight the Germans and make the world safe for democracy? Maybe. But maybe he saw military service as preferable to going to jail for the Castlemaine B&E and undergoing any further uncomfortable interrogations about the murdered stationmaster. Friday the 20th of October 1939 was a big day for Victoria. This was the start of the call-up for men who'd volunteered and been approved fit for service. Recruiting depots were set up at 26 drill halls across Melbourne and the countryside. Each day, each centre was to take 20 men, a total of 520 statewide, until Victoria's initial quota of 3,000 was met. Thomas was in the first intake fronting up again to the Preston Drill Hall. He took the oath, swearing to serve the king in the military forces of the Commonwealth of Australia until the cessation of the present war, and for 12 months after that. That done, Thomas and the other 19 Preston recruits were off to their quarters at the Melbourne showgrounds. There, they and 500 other men were issued their kits. The next morning, they started preliminary training, drilling up to seven hours a day. In two weeks, they'd be going to the newly established military camp at Puckapunyal for advanced training. But Thomas didn't get that far. On the 7th of November 1939, he was in police custody so he could face court in Castle, Maine. Two days later, he was found guilty on the break in charges, while the charges against Fred were dropped. How this came about wasn't explained in the brief newspaper articles covering the case. Thomas was given a two-year sentence, and his military discharge took effect from that day. So Thomas was back in uniform, prison uniform in Pentridge. Now a three-time loser, he'd cool his heels behind those big bluestone walls in Coburg, while the men he'd enlisted with, trained, deployed to North Africa and on the 3rd of January 1941 fought the Italians at Bardia in Libya, marking the first major Australian military action of the Second World War. Thomas was counting the days until he was free, while these men saw initial glory at Tobruk and were then pummeled in Greece. With remissions, Thomas got his liberty on the 8th of July 1941. Five months later to the day, as Australia was reeling from the breaking news that American Pearl Harbor and British Malaya were under Japanese attack, someone blew up the rail pay car at Yandera, southwest of Sydney. The driver, George Randall, was killed in the blast. The guard, Arthur Philpot, bled out in the wreckage. The paymaster, Fred Walker, died in hospital the following day. Who could have committed such a brutal triple murder? Another train driver saw two men running from the scene. They both looked very similar 5'10 or so, dark hair, dark complexion, medium build, aged 30 to 40. They were swarthy enough that they might be foreigners. Suspects matching this description had also been seen in the area with two women. What was clear was whoever had blown up the pay car had known its schedule. In New South Wales, the modus operandi system of record-keeping and retrieval had been used since 1930. When a crime was committed, clerks used all the available information to turn up suspects who matched, based on their age, appearance, known associates, crimes they'd committed and been suspected of committing, methods they'd used, and so on. Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Edward Croft, was now 35, and his description was a perfect match for either man. Sydney police believed he'd shot George Oakman with intent to murder in 1934. He'd used violence in a similar street robbery the next year. It's very possible Sydney detectives were aware Kenneth O'Connell had accused Thomas of murdering the stationmaster at Carnegie. They certainly knew he worked with accomplices and that this had included women. Possibly Sydney police were also aware his father was a veteran railway man. Thomas probably wasn't immediately the prime suspect in the yandera Paycar massacre. But Sydney detectives, who'd go to extraordinary lengths in the scope of their interviews in this case, would almost certainly have wanted to talk to him. All they had to do was find him. How hard was that going to be? After all, this man had spent more than eight of the past 10 years behind bars. He wasn't that good at getting away with much. Except right now... Where was he? Straight after he'd walked out of Pentridge, Lionel Charles Thomas had seemed to disappear from the face of the earth. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. Part two will be released very soon to general podcast platforms but the second, third, and fourth installments are all available now, early and ad-free, for Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. If you use Apple, you can get a three-day free trial and get access to the rest of this episode. Cancel if you like, or continue to subscribe to get other bonus episodes and every episode early and ad-free. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.